Hello everyone, I'm Mark, the chief writer here at Maltopia, and I just wanted to remind you the sleep-wake cycle is but one of a series of interconnected horror podcasts within the wide and weird world of Maltopia. For Easter eggs, crossover events, and additional lore, please check out our other series, The Shepherd of Wolves, Red Mother, Grimland, and The Damnation Machine. And be sure to check out our free content on our Patreon page for additional lore and stories. For even more Maltopia content, consider becoming a patron. Starting for as little as $2 a month, benefits range from additional art, update videos, early episode access, our mini-podcast series, October's Children, both written and full audio pieces, such as The Lost Library, Tales of Maltopia, and The Weird Book. You can also gain access to our found footage show, The Weird Tape Series, and even our Patreon-exclusive, fully-produced audio series, Devil's Clay. So, with all that said, I will leave you to the darkness. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Rusty Quill presents Quite a few tries to achieve anything that looked like it could work. Isaiah's power had no real effect on me, just those forces seeking to upset the balance of the banal little world. Really, all he'd managed to do in those instances he'd reached across sleep to help me was to push back said powers, trying to get his ability to stabilize a dream, especially mine, was near impossible. We had a breakthrough just before we were ready to call it quits. It all changed when I thought to utilize someone else's dream as my jumping off point, someone who wasn't blood related to Isaiah. 
But even that wasn't enough, as I could only feel the most banal objects of the stolen dream slightly steel themselves against change. Still, it was a clue. In the end, we nailed it. After Isaiah focused on a real-world object, something he could wrap his head around, and I fashioned the dream after it, his power held the thing together like it had been assembled with cement. In this particular case, the object was a diving bell. The kind you sat inside of, not the type you wore over your head, which seemed all the rage in Nighthead's criminal underground. After I nabbed the nearest dream, it belonged to a fisherman who lived right across the hill where we hunkered down in the house. I got right down to business. I didn't touch his mind beyond turning its dream into a diving bell, or more appropriately, a sleeping bell. It was crucial I not spill any bad memories or whatnot, lest the dream react and stretch all out of shape. After the dream was all folded into the desired shape, I popped out briefly to talk with my brother. I really hope Kelpies can't talk, because if they can, shouldn't be too hard for certain interested parties to figure out we'd be somewhere near the beach. The old lady's gonna take priority in either case. They'll keep their people close to her until she's in a secure location, and I should be able to maintain a passive field for anyone sneaking around. Okay, if you say so. Once you're down there, don't go digging too deep. We just need some directions. I'm gonna look for that guy Reynard's house, the one with the research library Doc Boley talked about. After that, I'll see if I can get an idea of where to look for the Crickmire mansion. Depending on how all that goes, I'll just chum the seas of sleep with some general imagery to get the basic lowdown. Anything goes sideways, jump out. We have no idea what kinds of freakiness this place can get up to when it's sleeping. Oh, we have some idea, all right. Kelpies, draconic old woman, geysers of supernatural evil. Places a hoot, awake or asleep, I'd bet. Can you communicate with me once you're inside? I can talk and signal with my hands when I'm in the shallows, but once I'm down deep, I'll only be able to blink or twitch, if that. Although, if you monitor my pulse, you might get a hint of what I'm up to. Gotcha. Be careful down there, sis. I mean it. No wooden nickels. Don't worry. I'll make like Santa Claus, in and out with no one the wiser. All right. See you topside in a few. After I nodded my goodbye, I slipped back into sleep and inside the sleeping bell. It was a fairly basic affair. Its simplicity was key for my brother's ability to keep it firmly in mind. It did have a few knobs and gauges here and there, but nothing overly technical. Just enough to pass for the real deal, so Isaiah's power could latch onto it. There were four portholes inside the thing, three located equidistantly, left, right, and center, and one in the floor. A big red button clung to the wall, and I pushed it, starting my descent into the dreamscape below. The sleep space itself manifested as a whirling black pit yawning beneath me, just waiting to swallow me whole. I didn't have time to second-guess the plan, so I just held on. The bell dropped down from the fisherman's sleeping mind, taking its place within the collective dream that hovered over the city. As I imagined, everything was dark. 
like the population slept inside one huge closet. The darkness beyond the portholes cleared up a bit as I dropped lower, dissolving into a labyrinth of dark hallways and lifeless back rooms. Under my direction, the bell moved through all of this as if it were being dragged along the bottom of the sea, a casual, almost weightless drift through the bleakest of places. The dreaming population of marrows wandered the dark, some of them mindlessly prying at locked doors, others struggling with grime-sealed windows, all of them searching for a way out, for light. The bell suddenly picked up speed, caught in the pull of some invisible force. Not wanting to cause a stir, I relented to the draw, letting it take me where it would. A massive stairwell melted into view, and the bell started circling it, its orbit shrinking with every rotation, as if the thing were caught in a whirlpool, the current tugging it down the spiraling stairs. There was no light, but I could see despite the fact. Most dreams aren't sticklers for details, sadly. The stairs just kept going down, the bell along with them. I began to wonder if there was an end to the dream at all. When the bell finally hit bottom, the dream outside the portholes opened into a vast expanse of cracked marble flooring, gray and dust-covered. The darkness arrested my view of whatever might have abutted the rambling floor, so I checked to see if any of the instrumentation along the bell wall might turn out to be a light switch. After some lever pulling and button mashing, a spotlight affixed to the top of the bell turned on, casting a wide beam into the murk. Apparently, my brother's power admitted changes, so long as they made real-world sense. A little metallic arm even poked out of the wall, allowing me to position the light. Those wonderful, wonderful details. Even if they weren't there two seconds before. Massive paintings of monstrous faces and wild scenes clung to the walls that stretched upward and out of sight, beyond even the reach of the spotlight. I tried to study the proffered images, but without directly plying my power to stabilize them, they blurred and squirmed around, making the particulars hard to decipher. I thought I'd be able to do more from the bell, but it looked like I'd have to get out if I wanted any answers. I had to untwist a large seal at the top to get the door open. <laughs> Sometimes the little details can also be a royal pain in the ass. The atmosphere outside the bell felt like a mosaic made from the moments preceding a horrible death. Still, it wasn't New Victoria horrible. <laughs> Thank God for small favors. My eyes splashed blue across the paintings, their power pinning the images in place. As the wall came into focus, the smell of smoke dragged my attention sideways. Cinders like orange stars drifted through the vast gray chamber, smoke curling around them like effulgent nebulae. Fire flickered just beyond the darkness. I could feel it. Before I knew it, I was caught in the pull of secrets, moving farther from the sleeping bell, from safety.
Like fat velvet curtains, the darkness parted to reveal a burning building set upon the stage of the collective dream. The Museum of Darkness. The one the citizens of Maros had all but certainly torched. The arson an attempt to hide their dirty little secrets. At last, here it stood, the burial place of their burning memories, their collective sins. I turned my eyes upon the flames, calming and cooling those closest to the entrance. The inside was fire and smoke and strange secret shapes. I saw crates, dozens of them, packed with gold, nailed shut and wrapped in chains. I saw images of them being thrown overboard, into the deepest part of the lake. But why? My eyes continued prying and pulling at the writhing secrets. Another came loose, hot and red in my hands, my mind. A huge underground room. A throne room. They knelt here, prayed, worshipped. They pleaded with the darkness, begged it to make good upon promises past, to send him. My cobalt gaze would not be denied. They ripped the rest of the secret from the fire. The people of Maros pleaded for their first crowned king. They pleaded for Nychrist, the son of eels. The burning building shuddered, buckling under its own weight. I emerged outside just as it fell to the roaring flames, crashing down in a plume of dust and ash. I'd already turned to leave when the sound of something moving beneath the smoking rubble stopped me in my tracks. The power of the emerging creature shook my bones. I didn't dare turn around as its shadow stretched out in front of me, cast by the lingering fires. The peak of the shadow writhed like tentacles, and I knew it for what it was. The crown of Hydra's. Do you want to know her name, Rosemary? What she looked like? Why not? After all, you felt her your entire life. You both have. You basked in her nameless love, felt her hands through the flesh of her womb, where she cradled you. The thing's words sought the most guarded parts of me, springing fires as they went. My mother never loved me. Us. We were meant to be monsters. She hated us from the start. I spoke up despite myself raw and repressed feelings acting automatically. The museum wasn't the only thing caving from the heat. You think so? You really think that echo of adoration, that speck of warmth you've kept hidden within you, came from a woman who hated you? Now, I know you can't help but feel a little disappointed to realize all that love leads to nothing but a dead end. A corpse. But don't you think you at least owe it to her to learn her name? I could whisper it to you, if you'd like. Smoking debris crunched beneath the creature's approach. I stood frozen, watching its shadow lengthen further. 
I'd waltzed through countless nightmares and barely flinched, but when confronted with my own past, I became a statue. My hand crept to my Balak, the son of eels only a few steps behind me. Gently, he took my wrist and slid the blade back into its sheath. I could feel his cold breath on my ear. Her name was Charlotte. The name broke me from my stupor. My eyes a sea of blue fire, my Balak lashed an arc of fury behind me. But the sweep of my blade only caught the ash of a bygone blaze. I was alone. Alone with a name I never wanted to hear. I hadn't stopped feeling the presence of unearthly things since we hit the cave. It was everywhere, which made Romy's theory even more convincing. Still, the whole thing with the serpent line just confused schmucks like me. Sure, I like to poke around the science books, read the occasional monograph on this or that theory, but the stuff Romy was into was way above my pay grade. I mean... What the hell is supernatural energy anyway? I land exopaths because I can deduce their patterns, figure their motives, run them down. This shit was like reading tea leaves from outer space. But even with all that, my power seemed to know the stuff whenever it reared up, even if I didn't. And while I trusted my instincts well enough, I preferred to have at least some sense of what I was up against. Instead, Time and time again, I felt like little more than a blind bat running entirely on sonar. Principles of geomantic organization and manifestation and other such mumbo-jumbo could go kick rocks. All I needed to know was where the Eel King was and how many rounds it was going to take to land him. I wasn't generally in the habit of being so single-minded about my targets, but things had changed. I had skin in the game now. My sister was all the family I'd ever known, and likely all I would ever know. I couldn't let my want to romanticize the hunt risk getting her hurt, or worse. The shift in priorities uh, highlighted certain truths about myself. Truths I wasn't sure I was ready for. It wasn't just that the hunt was my ticket to Wonderland, where reality lost a bit of its edge. It was that sometimes I took my time with the Exos allow them a little too much slack for the sake of prolonging the game, to get my fix of unreality before the revolvers stole it all away. Firing them filled me up too completely, showed me the limit of things, disavowed potential, hope. They were always my last resort, the end of the dream. I didn't want to admit it, but... My want to keep them holstered had cost lives in the past. But from here on out, there would be no more hesitation. This was no longer a game. They know we're here. What happened? I talked to it. Nycrist, the son of eels. Nycrist? Yeah, pretty sure it's derived from the name Nightchrist. The one who takes away the light of the world. 
It's found in, in several of the most secretive night faiths, um, especially... All right, all right, uh, slow down. One thing at a time. What happened down there? A lot more than I bargained for. That's what happened down there. By the time Romy caught me up to speed, she seemed exhausted, done in by her brush with absolute evil. And yet, even with all the stuff about the burning museum of darkness and the crowned monstrosity, she seemed to be holding something back. What do you make of them dumping the crates of gold? Seems to me it could have gone a long way toward filling the coffers at the temples of Umbriel and Knox. Yeah, I wasn't in my right mind when things were going on, but it's pretty obvious now that I think about it. Gold is a symbol of the sun. Clearly not something a messiah of darkness would want hanging around. You think gold could be more than a symbolic aversion for this... Nychrist? Sort of like silver and werewolves. I don't know. And I'm not jumping back into the lake to find out, either. Another good question is, where did they get all that gold in the first place? <laughs> You're slipping, Mr. Holmes. Remember the mines from the Discovery materials? Damn, that's right. And all the underground images of the throne and whatnot? They sure as hell weren't dressing up in fish bones and dancing in the woods. They were digging out the serpent line, getting ready for whenever the King of Fish showed up. That's what I'm thinking. Although, getting in there now is going to be next to impossible, especially now that they know we're here. I'm surprised that guy, uh, Renard, spilled the beans on that place at all. While I was down, I could see the townspeople wandering around their nightmares, searching for a way out of all of this. It must be hell living here. Raynard probably knew the chance he was taking, but did it anyway. Just out of spite. And he likely paid for it. I couldn't find any trace of him down there. What about directions to the Crickmire place? Those guys might be more important than ever. They likely know where the mine is. Maybe even some alternative ways in. No, I kinda got sidetracked by the whole burning building and king of darkness thing. Well, I think you more than compensated for it. <laughs> what can I say? I'm an overachiever. Question is, does Nychris take out the Crickmires before we can talk to them? I don't know. Maybe he thinks we already know enough without them. This Nychris didn't say anything besides calling you by name? Uh, mm-mm. No, that was it. The Sleep-Wake Cycle is a Maltopia production. Today's episode was written by Mark Anzalone and performed by Kelly Bear and Mark Anzalone. The episode was edited by Walker Kornfeld. Sound production and editing was performed by Stephen Anzalone. And the Sleep-Wake Cycle theme song was written and performed by Sean Zeller. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Maltopia. That's M-A-E-L-T-O-P-I-A. And if you'd like to know more about the world of the sleep-wake cycle and contribute to its nightmarish expansion, visit us at www.patreon.com forward slash Meltopia, where you can gain access to all sorts of art, mythology, stories, and more. For more information about the sleep-wake cycle and the larger world of Meltopia, head over to Meltopia.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 